You awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God! Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. My name is Brian. Hey guys, it's Murdoch. Thanks so much for listening. We take on rumor. We take on innuendo. We do a little research for you, and we'll you know we'll get into something. If you have a request, you can send it to us. WeAreTheStoryGuys.com is where you go to get interactive, or you shoot an email to WeAreTheStoryGuys at gmail.com. And today is a question about Jerry Rafferty. Not a household name that is Dylan or Elvis or Cher or really even Brett Michaels or Boy George. This is someone who we may need to place a little context around. And so I'm going to do that very quickly with this riff. (laughs) I mean, Jesus Christ, I love this riff. What are your feelings on Baker Street? Wow. I, n- I never had his name attached to Baker Street, so this is all fun. Like this is really great, like you yeah. you don't you don't know anything about Jerry Rafferty? No, this is going to be all new everything to me. Oh this man, there's so much to tell, and it's 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 an absolutely I don't want to say amazing story. I, okay, that that right there. Let's start there. Is That's there, a 19. 19- is, is there sex and drugs on the way? Uh, there, because- no, there's. There's not really set. Well, yes, there are. There's alcohol. There's a whole lot of alcohol. That's a 1978 hit called Baker Street. Now, here's a fun rock and roll bedtime story just about that song. Lots of contention around the sax riff. It's played by a dude named Raphael Ravenscroft, which is maybe the best name for a sax player ever. Say um, it again. again. Ra- Raphael Ravenscroft. Uh, he he doesn't. Yeah. So he doesn't get writing credit. There's tons of contention about this because it's indeed the defining 30 seconds of that piece and arguably uh, of Jerry's career, except for something that you you also don't attach to him that we're going to talk about shortly. And it it's really what led to him becoming successful and making tons of royalties, right? Like that song sort of sets him up. Ravenscroft claims that he got the modern day British equivalent of about $135 for playing it. Uh, he he also claims that his $135 check bounced, <laughs> which if you're only going to get paid $135 for contributing to musical history, I, that might be the better story. Like, forget the money. Being able to, he claims that the bounced check is framed on his lawyer's office, in his lawyer's office. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that that wouldn't wouldn't really coming out of an account like that account wasn't even real. They were paying <laughs> out of something that wasn't even real. Acme Incorporated, yeah, yeah, uh, not so, a real bank account. Clearly, he claims that he came in with this sax. One thing I read said that it was a sax that he got out of his car in the parking lot. That he was there to do something else, and he was like, and they were messing around, and he's like, oh, let me get my get my sax out of my car, and maybe I can do something there. And and he claims there there wasn't music given to him, right? He wasn't just taking orders. Now, depending on what you read, Jerry had proof of an early demo where he's humming the dun 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 dun, which of course would make Raphael Ravenscroft a liar. Um, so no real action was pursued. Uh, though Jerry's longtime manager, John Brewer, who we're going to talk a lot about in a little bit, 
claims that Raphael's Revenge came. Which would be a great name of an Activision game from the 80s for an Atari. <laughs> Raphael's, Raphael's Revenge. Revenge. He runs yeah. around and hits you with his sax. Yeah, uh, it's like it's like Pitfall, <laughs> but like violent. It's like Pitfall with Grand, the- Grand Theft Auto combined. I'd go, like, go ahead. I'd like to go back and strike from the record when you gave me the setup and said, is there a lot of sex and drugs involved? I really should have said no, but there's a lot of sax and drugs involved. <laughs> See, it was so easy. Well, I know. You know we, we know each other, and you weren't stepping on that jo- That was your joke. It, it was right across the plate, and I somehow whiffed. I'm sorry. Um, okay, so... John Brewer does become part of the storytelling here soon. He gave this really long interview to Louder Sound back in 2019 that gives our questions and our quandaries today a little structure and a lot of background. So we're going to be back talking about him. But what he says happened is that Raphael Ravenscroft got really mad and like stormed out and said, I'll, I'll have my vengeance or whatever um, at some point. And he claims that he seduced that Raphael Ravenscroft seduced and ran off with John Brewer's personal assistant and that they ended up getting married. I don't know if that's true or not. That's just a funny little side story. But but what an interesting side story to add to the <laughs> to this tale of this the guy that think that the guy that says that he's that he got rot, ripped off for the you, you just guy, played it on a mouth trumpet. That's not the yeah. same thing. You got to do got, the mouth saxophone. Not the burp, 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 burp. <laughs> um, okay, the sax solo is not it's what we're here crazy. to discuss. The bourbon makes makes the lips kind of slow. <laughs> yeah. It should it should lubricate better than that. Anyway, we're not here to talk about lubrication or a sax solo. Uh, we're here to get at the question at the core of the show today, which is: Is it true? That in 2008, Jerry Rafferty, the man behind Baker Street and other assorted hits, literally disappeared. Like, full-on missing persons report, vanished into thin air, gone. Oh. Uh, oh, like, like, no one knows where he went, really. To be a little okay. more specific, did he first wreck a hotel room, get admitted to medical care, and then just vanish from the hospital Empty bed, personal belongings left behind. What the hell happened to Jerry Rafferty? Let's dig in. Yeah. Oh, this sounds awesome. Okay. Okay. It, man. Ger- Gerald Rafferty uh, was born in Scotland in 1947. And he grows up listening to Dylan and the Beatles, and he starts writing his own stuff. Late 60s, he's in a folk group with Billy Connolly. Do you know that name? The actor? So yeah, not a household name in the U.S., but basically still a really big deal to the Scots. He pivoted yeah. to comedy in the seventies, right? And he's yeah. he's sort of like the Scottish Seinfeld, like big yeah. deal, big deal. Yeah, I I love him. Okay, he's regarded as one of the best comedians to ever come out of the U.K. If it's not Scottish, it's crap. It feels important to note here that I ran across several things in the research that were quick to point out that Jerry Rafferty was also very funny, and and you. I say that because as this story progresses, we are not going to encounter a funny version of Jerry Rafferty, okay? Very humorless version of Jerry Rafferty, if I if I'm dare say. But Billy Connolly used to do this bit in stand-up about how he and Jerry, while they were in Berlin one time, would go through the phone book to see if anyone was listed under the last name Hitler. And then <laughs> there, there, there was a game they used to play. I, I, it, this is the only reference I heard of this, but apparently Jerry had a glass eye. And this is the only point where I saw this. 
but there was a game they used to play where Jerry would bump into old ladies in public and then like he would have his his eye at the ready to fall out of oh, his face. Oh, that is so freaky gross. And he would see if he could get him to pass out. So I, I bring this stuff up only because I want to be somewhat fair and balanced to Jerry Rafferty. And the Jerry Rafferty we're going to see for the rest of this story is is not hilarious. And so I, I think it's fair to say that at least early in his career when he was running around playing music with uh, pre-comedy Billy Connolly, he was a pretty funny guy. Now, I said he's not hilarious. Why is this? These sorts of things are complicated, right? Real life versus public perception, fame management, a whole host of other complicating factors. But Jerry's daughter has noted publicly that there was an encounter with something that really seemed to shape Jerry around this time and sort of cast a shadow over the rest of his career and the rest of his life. And it's a book. It's in as much as I'm a library nerd, I didn't know about this book. It's a book from 1956 called The Outsider. It was written by a dude named Colin Wilson, and I might read it now because I find this story very interesting. Basically, the book is an examination, it's nonfiction, and it's case studies of writers and artists who had a big impact on the world up to that point who were categorized or categorized themselves as outsiders. Some of the people profiled in this book, H.G. Wells, Kafka, Camus, Hemingway, Van Gogh, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky. That's a long list, and it's a, it's a big list, big influence. But this book sought to get into the psyche of this type of person and try to figure out how that psyche was affected by society at large and how this psyche affected society. So, obviously, very heady stuff. Uh, apparently, Jerry Rafferty gets obsessed with this book. In fact, there's pretty good evidence that Jerry meant for Baker Street, sax solo and all, to be like the lyrical version of this book. But I will tell you, I've read a lot of different things about what Baker Street's supposed to be about. So who really knows? Um, in fact, I actually found a failed Indiegogo account during this research. So if you don't know what Indiegogo is, it's like a, it's a crowdfunding platform. They didn't reach their goal, but they had put it up. Some filmmakers were trying to undertake a documentary about Colin Wilson... They were doing it at the behest of Martha Rafferty, Jerry's daughter, using Jerry's former production company. Wow, that's interesting. The cat diversified a little bit also. All of this to say Jerry seems to make a decision very early in his career about the type of artist that he thinks he is. And he thinks he is an outsider. And this really comes into play in shaping the Jerry that we ultimately get as an artist and a songwriter and a public figure. But back to the fun stuff for a moment. He's in this duo in the late 60s, Billy Connolly, right? And him. They're called the Humble Bums. And Billy Connolly starts to lean into comedy. And when Billy starts telling jokes, Jerry starts to strike out on his own. And his first record comes out in 1972, and it features a title track that I enjoy called Can I Have My Money Back? Went to the movies and the movie broke down. I mean, it's... Oh, you've got to be kidding me. What? This is unreal. It, it's sort of low-rent Beatles. Like, you know how I said he was, like, really into the Beatles? Like, there's always a little bit of a Paul McCartney comparison that happens, especially early in his career. Yeah, but there's a fiddle in there, though, man. That's yeah, a, there's yeah. There's a fiddle in there in the sixth. That's, that is definitely not um, British pop music. No. So, it you know, it's fine, but fairly derivative. And critics like it, but it doesn't really sell... And he gets a little traction from a song called Make You Break You. 
and he ends up teaming with an old buddy from his teenage years named Joe Egan. And the two of them start playing together. And they get a chance to work with a couple of guys who are American dudes. And I'm hoping this is going to put it in territory that you're a little more comfortable with. They get to work with two dudes named Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Wow. That's that's huge. Okay. Talk a little bit about Lieber and Stoller. Um, They wrote the Great American Songbook. (laughs) I was going to try to read a list, but that's probably the more succinct way to explain it. It, It's like, you know, there's there's the Brill Building, there's Lieber and Stoller, there's Rodgers and Hammerstein. I mean, they're part of the fabric of, of what... That's the songbook's kind of considered, I guess. But why don't you read the songs so that everybody else will understand the the breadth of work that those two songwriters have? Well, I mean, there are a lot. There's 70 plus uh, chart hits over the years, but some of the most, most well-known, the ones that everybody knows the lyrics to, Jailhouse Rock, Yakety Yak, oh. Stand By Me is a Lieber and Stoller song. Uh, classic stuff, but Lieber and Stoller come in not to write with Jerry and Joe because Jerry and Joe are good writers. They come in to help produce Jerry and Joe. And so Jerry and Joe create a band and they name themselves Steelers Wheel. Oh my gosh, what? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Is it the Dylan thing? Fantastic. Yeah, well, so, okay, let's have this conversation. Who did you think this song was done by the first time you heard it? The first, the first time I heard it was... I guess when I saw Reservoir Dogs, maybe, and so that might have been '89 or '90, whenever that movie came out with. And I, I at first, I did think it was a, a Dylan song. I definitely thought it was Dylan the first time I heard it, and then I remember at one point thinking maybe it was Steve Miller. Like I, I had no idea uh, who it I got was. The sa- I got the soundtrack immediately because um, it was great. But I mean, my word! So how do we got to Steelers Wheel? <laughs> From Weeper and Stoller. Right. We're taking leapfrogs across the uh, rock hey, and roll like like frog pond. This who knew Lieber and Stoller produced Stuck in the Middle with you? Uh, and it is, as we said, one of the most classically misidentified songs. And it, it actually, I, I read some things that pointed out that it was very much meant to be mocking Bob Dylan. Like he was, he was trying to sound like Bob Dylan on that song. I don't know how true that is, but... Um, and obviously, you mentioned you already jumped to Quentin Tarantino back in 1992 is the year that Reservoir Dogs comes out and that song gets resurrection. But it's it's a big hit in its first life in 1972, 20 years before that. They have a couple other hits and we see this throughout his career. Things become problematic for Jerry when they start to be successful. When he gets close to success, things get weird. And it's a little unclear what happens here, but Jerry tries to leave Steeler's Wheel right when this album comes out. And then he ends up back because it's fairly successful. It's almost like he wanted to leave thinking it was going to be a failure. And then he's like, oh, wait, maybe there's something for me to do here. Ultimately, the band doesn't last very long, but there's contractual obligations that hamstring Jerry. This is really common during this time period. 
And something about missing royalty checks and bad management and all that sort of stuff leave him in the 70s unable to release his own music. So there's a gap where he does early 70s and then there's nothing from him for a period of years. And so this is where I want to get back to this guy I mentioned when we started. John Brewer, he he makes music documentaries now and he's done a bunch of them. Some of them you've probably seen. But he meets Jerry around this time, and he has a front row seat to the next period of his career because he's his manager. Now, in the show notes, you're going to find a link to this full piece that I mentioned done by this uh, guy named Scott Rowley for Louder Sound. Louder Sound does excellent stuff. And in 2019, he sat down to Brewer to talk specifically about managing Jerry Rafferty. The piece is called Jerry Rafferty, The Man Who Hated the Music Business. And I, and I want to be clear that a lot of this next stuff is coming from John Brewer. So it doesn't mean it's gospel, but it's damn interesting. So Brewer says that when he meets Jerry post-Steeler's Wheel, he's broke, he's a new dad, and he's desperate for money. And Jerry plays him some stuff he's been working on, including the song that becomes Baker Street. Wow. And Brewer claims he's so impressed by the new music that he gives Jerry five grand of his own money to keep him covered up. So Brewer helps him create the record that becomes City to City. Now, you mentioned that you don't, you, you wouldn't have been able to tell me who did Baker Street, so you might not know the other Jerry, Jerry Rafferty songs. There was another big song in America. Other parts of the world, he has quite a few hits. In America, he sort of has two big ones, if you don't count the Steelers' wheel thing. He has Baker Street and he has a song called Right Down the Line. When I wanted you to share my life, I had no doubt in my mind. And it's been you, woman, right down the line. I guess you just didn't work it as much like AC based, catalog based radio as I did, because we definitely played a lot of Jerry Rafferty. No, and, and I, I never have uh, at all. I've I've done a lot of things, but that's one thing I haven't. Man, that song's really groovy. I like that song. And, and you know, he he does get lumped in sort of with that yacht rock movement to a, to a I, certain degree. I, I was going to say, has I, I hope that this work. You know, I, I'm so curious to find out what has happened to him and how the yacht rock resurgence. I mean, for Pete's sake. I well, have all of four of Questlove's Spotify Yacht Rock uh, playlist. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal, man. <laughs> People like Yacht Rock. So. so Brewer helps him create the record that becomes City to City. Both those songs are on it. And he goes to shop this to record labels. And this is where we start to see this version of Jerry Rafferty that I said was coming. This aggressive, angry side of Jerry that will start to become more char- characteristic. So according to Brewer... Their first stop is Martin Wyatt for Anchor Records. He hears the record, and he is in love with it. And he's like, gotta meet this guy, can't wait. So Brewer, again, this is all from Brewer's perspective. This is coming from his mouth. Takes Jerry over for a casual meeting at their offices. And this is a quote from the interview. Quote, later I get a call from Martin Wyatt. I wouldn't sign that man if you gave me the record. And if I knew it was going to be a number one album. And I said, why? And he says, he's the most unbelievably obnoxious person I've ever met in my entire life. Yikes. And so John Brewer then asked, well, what did he say to you? 
And Martin Wyatt says, he said that he was never going to support the album, he was never going to play in a band, and he was never going to go on the road, and all he wanted to do was stay at home and write songs for his daughter. So, next, because <laughs> they're not, they're not going to put out the album there, next they go to Island Records. They have a meeting with Chris. They talk to Craig Blackwell, right? They talk to Chris Blackwell. Chris Blackwell, yeah. I would rather... Craig Blackwell, Craig Blackwell by the way, went to my kindergarten class and ran <laughs> from there. Sorry, Craig. Chris Blackwell, Island Records. I would rather sign Gary Glitter than that man. Quote from Black Chris Blackwell, according to John. What? A, what? Wow! What a what a smack in the nose that is. That's a big. That's a big fu. And and this is what Chris Blackwell continues on to say. He really can't stand anyone in the music industry, anyone in the music publishing industry, and all he wants to do is write songs for his daughter. So this keeps coming up. He's going into these places and he's basically saying, "I don't want to do your business. I'm glad you like my record. I don't want to do your business. I just want to stay home and be dad." So. I'm going to read from this article again here, this louder sound piece. Brewer took the album to the U.S., where he got a meeting with Artie Mogul, who had then just bought United Artists with Jerry Rubenstein. They had ELO, Kenny Rogers, and the third artist was going to be Jerry Rafferty. And when he gets there, Artie Mogul's in a hurry because he's trying to go to the airport. And Brewer says, this is what Artie Mogul told him. Here's the deal. If I have to listen to this record, I'll give you 50 grand. If I don't, I'll give you 75. <laughs> and so Brewer says, dude, you're going to sign my artist for more money and not listen to the record? I'll take it. So months later, Rafferty's record is a number one record in the U.S. That he, that he didn't listen to. Now, remember, That's late great. 70s are the days of payola. We haven't talked about this tons on the show. But Brewer also claims in this article that the reason they get to the number one spot in the U.S. is that they did this thing, which I think was actually very common at this time. And a lot of people who don't know the radio industry and don't know the record industry are going to be like, what? But if you if you ever pay attention, you'll see on on records or you'll see client, you know, if you're reading articles or old stickers stuck on LP covers or whatever about how many units were shipped. It's not how many units were sold. Yeah, that's to yeah, totally different, especially when wax was the big deal, like when, you know, in the 70s right. and 80s. Yeah, or even CDs, it's I mean, at some point those big crazy funky rectangle plastic, you know, cardboard boxes, whatever. So to get to that status, the label used to ship albums to another warehouse. Because it was all about how many they'd shipped, not sold. Huh. And then you pay off radio to play it. And you can say, look, we've shipped this many units. Don't you want to play it? And then you slip something to radio. And it works. And, you know, I mean, Baker Street does become a legitimate hit. It, it may have had a push, but it becomes a legitimate hit. And yeah. everyone's happy about this, except for Jerry. Uh, I mean, he enjoys having money again, but he's very openly hostile about how he's gotten it. Brewer claims in this article that, like, he wouldn't even take meetings with him at his office. Um, or, and he wouldn't ride in his Rolls Royce. He would like make him go somewhere that was like of the people to have a meeting. So they would like have to go meet in a bar to talk about business. He would constantly, now he's Scottish. So he would constantly talk about how he hated capitalism. And up to this point, Jerry's hard to manage aspects are like pretty hidden. It's like John, according to John's story here, John Brewer is the main person seeing them. 
but and, and he has some incentive to put up with it because he's got money coming in. But in one of these meetings one day, Jerry tells Brewer that he has booked himself without John Brewer knowing a little gig of his own where he's going to go on the David Frost show. Huh. David Frost, of course, most known for his encounter with Richard Nixon on television. Uh, but he, he it's a talk show. And I have looked hard to find this clip. I do believe it happened, but I cannot find proof of it, which is pretty hard to find things that aren't on Vimeo or YouTube somewhere. So if somebody knows where it is or can find it, please send it to me. But this is what Brewer says happens on the show. So first he tells Jerry not to do it because he's like, Jerry, you're going to piss everyone off because he knows how rough around the edges Jerry is. And he's like, dude, the key is to keep Jerry out of the limelight, right? If we can just keep the music out there and people can imagine what he's like, when they know what he's like, it's going to be a problem. So this is a quote from the article. It took four minutes before he lost his audience. He was so rude about his fan base and about the American people and about going on the road that at the end of the day, that was it. It was all over. So, to hear John Brewer tell it, this marks the end not only of his relationship with Rafferty, which becomes funny because there's a whole thing about how he tries to get himself out of the contract he has with Rafferty, and then he has to like he ends up taking money on future albums to pay him out and stuff. But he also John Brewer sort of acts like this is the end of Rafferty in general, but it's not really the truth. The truth is not that simple. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Pair, Pair Networks. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get one of those up and running? Well, choose a website hosting company that makes it really easy. P-A-I-R, Pair. Pair Networks does just that. They have over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses, and not just in America, all over the world, right? So Pair makes it easy for you. It's a do-it-yourself website building tool. It's got features, it includes drag and drop page design, and they've guaranteed if you need a support technician, they're ready to help you whenever, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you're going to receive one free month of web hosting. So you can see for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting, and you can use the code QUICKSTART. That's Pair.com slash free, promo code QUICKSTART to get started today. Here's an alternative perspective on what happens to Jerry once City to City comes out. And this comes from Martha Rafferty. So we already know this is his daughter. We already know, A, that all he wants to do is hang out with this, with Martha. <laughs> He's been telling people all over town that. And this is his daughter who has gone on to do things even in the last few years to sort of maintain his legacy. So... Their relationship is pretty good. But th this is Martha Rafferty's perspective of what happens to Jerry after this solo album. I was eight years old when City to City went as big as it did, and it was weird, she says. We lived in a street, we had neighbors, but the more famous you get, the more you have to retreat from other people. So the houses and the gardens get bigger, the distance to other people gets further, and people's attitudes change. You start to become aware that people who didn't care suddenly care a lot. He was due to tour the U.S. He'd gone out there to do press, says Martha. He was met with the full showbiz trappings. A big limo from the airport, a suite on Central Park. He was invited to all the parties. And he had a panic attack in the streets of New York City and thought he'd had a heart attack. Wow. So 
I, I throw that in there because it's easy to read this sort of, I mean, it's not really a takedown piece from John Brewer because like it's years after the fact and you know, it doesn't matter, but it does need to be balanced by someone who cares about him a lot to give that perspective. I think, especially in a, in a day and age where we sit and we talk a lot about mental health. And this was a guy who did not have a handle on his own mental health for sure. Right. And, and from her perspective, she tells it from a very, you know, empathetic type of place from a, from a child's perspective. Right. Who, who, who in general, like a lot of times children have like, they're extra sensory. They're, they're different. They, they feel and understand things that, that we don't. And so that, that means a lot. And if you think about it, all of these other characters are all that are talking about what a pain in the ass that he is or how all having to try to make money off of him. Well, yeah, a hundred percent. Which it tells the story of what he doesn't like is the entire scenario of the, of having to be involved in that machine. So, yeah. And it, that's such an insightful observation because I do think some of this was anxiety, but I also think in some ways he's sort of this classic art for art's sake person, at least rhetorically. He was like the precursor forefather to a generation of musician that would come a decade or so later that would become obsessed with the idea of selling out. And I, I was just having this discussion with a friend over beers the other night. And you have I, you and I have had this conversation plenty, probably at least some on the microphones here. But this idea of selling out is not a thing anymore. And it's like hard to explain to younger people now who are creating TikToks set to ludicrous songs so that they can set up house showings for their real estate side gig. You know, I mean, to to explain that music wasn't always or isn't always thought of as a commercial vehicle. Like initially when it was like when all of a sudden Bob Seger's Like a Rock was like a thing. It's like now, you know, was that Chevy? Was it Chevy trucks? I don't know, man. It was a truck. I never owned a truck. At that time, I mean, no, no one was paying attention to people's mental health at that time. Well, and and if and if they did, they paid attention to it in a very different way than they should have been paying attention to it. Billy Connolly gave an interview in a BBC Scotland documentary, and he he says this on camera, which I think is really insightful. I wanted success and fame. Jerry wanted respect, and when you think of it through that lens you start to see why he's being difficult, right? He, he sees himself as, as this creative visionary in the same sort of way as Kafka, which is pretty big, right? <laughs> Kafka and yeah. Camus, Rafferty, right, in his brain. He, he also struggles with anxiety, and he is frustrated by the systems that create... I mean, we also sort of brushed over it, but... Is he? He's mad at the record industry partly because he got held hostage by the record industry for like five years. Remember when I said he from Steelers Wheel until seventy eight, so seventy three to seventy eight, he couldn't do anything with his music. So he he's got yeah. some reasons to be grumpy, is what I'm saying. In eighty three, he steps away from music, and he just says, "Listen, I'm going to hang out. I, I'm literally going to do what I told Chris Blackwell I was going to do. I'm going to hang out with my family." He returns intermittently, never with huge fanfare or overwhelming success. But he continues to take in those Baker Street royalties, and he, not unlike Prince, weirdly, a comparison you did not think you were going to hear when this episode started, no, is actually an early adopter of the internet age. And this is because it's born out of his disgust with the record industry. He starts selling his music exclusively through a website in like 2000, 2000, like real early. Wow, that's far out. 
So speaking of the internet, there's also this strange side story where he gets in a feud with one of his brothers who tries to publicly humiliate him. He has a website, which weirdly becomes like a gathering place for Jerry fans later, but on this website, his brother calls him names like The Great Gutsby and The Human Bottle Bank, which are all, I think, sort of Scottish slang, so they don't translate super well in America, but they're they're really meant to infer that Jerry was being consumed by alcohol and paranoia. Well, this is the consummate rock and roll bedtime story it's like where you're pulling together some really fun things here i love the fact that his brother has a website throwing shade at him i mean this is like <laughs> this has gotten so weird from it's like from, let me do that from, let me do that from I, here on out only you yeah i cannot like i am i'm not even like the backup person for this role you're not the backup mouth sacks no we'll we'll no. call in we'll call in phil medley for that we we went from we went from uh bakersfield to this oh my god this whole thing is so weird Baker so I, I mentioned this whole thing about the great gutsby and his brother because it gives a little context and i want us to be adequately prepared to discuss the question that brought us here what happened in 2008 As noted through this bizarre trolling, Jerry is getting increasingly dependent on alcohol, and it's becoming apparent as the late 2000s neared. Here's a couple things that happened before this. 2005, he collapses in his home. Rumor is he overdosed. It's not really been substantiated. Uh, 2007, he's carried off his privately chartered aircraft by wheelchair after he lands, reportedly because he was too drunk to walk. At that point, he ends up in some sort of rehab. But in 2008, he decides to move from California to Ireland. Now, if you struggle with the drink, I don't mean to be stereotyping here, but I don't think Ireland is the place they are supposed to send you. Yeah, no no, no offense taken. <laughs> the, the story goes that he starts to hit the bottle pretty hard. Again, and... Things culminate when he is on a trip to London in July of 2008. Now, I sort of laid this out at the beginning, but this next part of the story breaks down into three parts. We'll call it the hotel, the hospital, and the vanishing act. I found an archived article from the Scotsman here. Now, it was put into a Google chat. This is the stuff that I do in my spare time for this show. I was on some sort of google page that was about rock i don't know what it was about some sort of people pasting all sorts of stuff and and this article got repasted into this google with a reference to the scotsman so here it is jerry rafferty wasn't even on tour his last public performance was a good half decade ago. Instead, the 61-year-old singer-songwriter quietly booked himself into a five-star London hotel and four days later allegedly left a violated room soaked in blood and urine. Whoa. By all accounts, a quiet guest who kept to himself, his stay was halted when cleaners finally gained access to his suite. Although the this is... The way this article is written cracks me up. I, it took me a while of like, I've read this over and over and over. And by the fourth or fifth time, I was like laughing every time I got to this part because it's so silly. So he says, I'm just going to start over at that sentence. By all accounts, a quiet guest who kept to himself. So, hey, we didn't even see him. He was totally staying by himself. And then they interview the hotel manager. And it was like the guy didn't want to rewrite the sentence when he wrote the article because then he just tags this on at the end. 
Dash. Although the hotel manager did claim that there were instances of Rafferty relieving himself in unlikely corners of the hotel and that were distressing other residents. Wait, what? <laughs> that is the opposite of being quiet and keeping to yourself. <laughs> yes, it's taking a taking a leak. Public urination is not... Uh, yeah, you no. Okay, so that's the hotel portion of the story. Place gets wrecked, he gets booted out, and he gets taken to the hospital. So now we're at the hospital. They're they're taking him to St. Thomas's and they're looking at his liver because it's apparent that havoc has been wreaked on this organ for obvious reasons. And now the vanishing act. This appears September 8th, 2008 on ultimateguitar.com. I don't know why but ultimateguitar.com becomes the source that is referenced by like legitimate news sources. For folks who don't know, I know you know, ultimateguitar.com is a tablature website. Yeah, it's it's where I learn how to play all kinds of songs. Yeah, Over the pandemic, where I've learned how to play Bonnie Tyler's I'm Holding Out for a Hero, down to Gin Blossom's Hey Jealousy, all you look them all up on ultimateguitar.com and all the tabs are there. And it has news, which is weird. 2008, this goes up. Jerry Rafferty still missing. Original Steelers wheel frontman Jerry Rafferty is still missing one month after checking out of a London hospital on August 1st. Uh, it, and this is just on the message board, but most references I found to this particular posting point to Ultimate Guitar, even though it actually sounds like it was written for a news publication, not like it was just reposted on a message board, you know what I mean? But I can't find where it was originally sourced from. So here's the rest of the write-up. Rafferty, who had been experiencing liver problems, checked into St. Thomas Hospital July 25th. He underwent a series of tests to determine the status of his health, most likely damaged from years of heavy drinking. Doctors have yet to release his condition to the public. On August 1st, nurses entered Rafferty's room to find him gone. His bed empty, but his personal belongings left behind. London authorities have to yet determine a suspect for the apparent kidnapping. Wait, what? So this story clicks from tragic to criminal with one word. Kidnapping? <laughs> like, wait, I, I, who is throwing this down on ultimateguitar.com's message board to just speculate in a way that feels sort of official that the man who brought us is like tied up in a room somewhere to a chair? Craziness. The word yep. kidnap. So, but, so what really did happen? Well, listen, first... I'm immediately skeptical because if you're going to pull some sort of saving Silverman stunt and take a rich songwriter hostage, grabbing one whose liver is problematic and is incontinent and is being eaten alive by addiction, not the best move. Neil Diamond, a much better move. Uh, Can we talk about how great saving Silverman is? (laughs) I was like, you're not going to let that reference go by, are you? No, I don't even like Neil Diamond. Said it. I don't care. What a great movie. Love that movie. Amanda Pete, I owe you... Oh, I owe you so much. Um, okay. Like, hey, the big Montana, like for real, <laughs> where Amanda Pete is at, she's, she, they've kidnapped her and, and shit, and she wants a big Montana from Arby's. Listen, that big Montana was for real. That was like, <laughs> I don't know what they bring back the McRib like all the time, like it's a big thing. Like the, the big Montana from Arby's, that was like from another 
dimension of, of weird <laughs> fake roast beef kitchen from Arby's. Anyway, um, okay. So, so what? So what happened? Because now I'm fascinated. Because was he really kidnapped? Well, weirdly, mainstream press doesn't cover this a ton. There's like these weird gaps when going back to research this. There's there's this thing that happens in September, and then. All of the sudden, there's press attention in February of 2009. And I've not quite been able to figure out either of these scenarios. A, why they didn't cover it more. Or B, what causes them to start covering it in February. But it like this, and I, it literally might just be because it's the six-month mark. Because at that, at that mark, you start seeing stories about this across Britain. And, I, I, and maybe it's because that's concerning. Like six months specifically sounds very like permanent or almost permanent right or maybe yeah. not quite dead but like uh oh something's really wrong not just like he's out for a, a drink so what happens now if you look back at that original thread on the guitar tablature site that we both love you see that a post is made in the comments 13 days after the original post in september don't worry he's fine <laughs> I served him at a restaurant just off Piccadilly Circus tonight and then helped him to his hotel. I thought he looked familiar, so I went back and asked the porter his name, Googled him, and saw all the reports and called the cops. Cops came, said he's fine, and all this internet rumor is just internet rumor. Wow. Oh, this is exciting. And when the story breaks at the six-month mark that Jerry disappeared... You basically get confirmation from this. That they, he's, he's, he's totally fine. They confirm he's alive, but that he just wants to be left alone. So like people surrounding Jerry, like lawyers and publicists and stuff, all of a sudden start taking calls in February when the British press is like, what, what did happen to Jerry Rafferty? Where is he? Um, and... You know, it's not unsurprising that he would want to be left alone. Like, he sort of always wanted to be left alone, right? But we start to see headlines pop up in the British press this week in February. So there's, like, one article that comes out where it's, like, somebody's like, you know he's been missing since August? And then, like, three days later, there's, like, all these articles that say things like this. Jerry Rafferty found living in hiding. Missing singer discovered living in south of England. And depending on what you read now, some articles reference Jerry leaving the hospital without any flair. They just say that he checked himself out. Regardless, when the interest in Jerry's whereabouts ignite in February, Jerry's people decide to make the most of it. His lawyers talk to Channel 4 News that week and say, contrary to reports, Jerry is extremely well and has been living in Tuscany for the last six months. He continues to compose and record new songs and music, and he hopes to release a new album of his most recent work in the summer of this year. Lo and behold, a new album titled Life Goes On is in fact released in November of 2009. But the actual truth doesn't look to be as cheery as his lawyers make it sound. It actually seems that he was moving around from hotel to hotel in London during most of this time. Like, not in Tuscany, I'm just saying. Which right, which right. Tuscany's like the default place you like rich like I don't even know why everybody wants to go to Tuscany, but I just know I want to go to Tuscany too. Like I couldn't tell you what I'm gonna do when I'm in Tuscany. It's it sounds just it sounds just like it's great. 
It even sounds like it's great. There's a t- there's a res- restaurant called like Tuscany Italian Restaurant that's down the road from me, and it's not even that good. But you know what? It's good enough. They even have like a guy playing piano sometimes, and it's embarrassingly terrible. But it's good enough. Like, listen, man. The- sometimes it's just it's just in the name. Tuscany. It just works. Yeah. For sure. He does meet a woman during this time who, at least to hear her tell it, helps him get clean. And they have a relationship until the end of his life. And unfortunately, the end of of life for him, if you can't tell from what was going on with him at this point, is not very far away from this moment in time. Uh, The organs that he was having checked out at the hospital, specifically his liver, they, they start to fail in late 2010. And in the very early days of 2011... Um, he he passes away. Okay, so he didn't actually disappear, even though I thought they did. Wow, that's he, what a roller coaster. He, he didn't actually disappear, though he seems to have done what he wanted to do, which was get away from everybody. And like I said, <laughs> there's this cheery version that's sold to the press. But if you start to dig around, it does, in fact, seem that he was sort of, I mean, you know, he's still making money. He's not, like, destitute. But he's basically just, like, going and hiding in hotels in Britain and trying to knock it, you know, not let people recognize him, etc. Now, the one thing I think is weird is that if he was really doing that, would the porter at the hotel know that it was Jerry Rafferty and, like, be able to confirm that? I mean, it's not like people knew really what he looked like, especially at this point. Like, because... Not to be disrespectful, but I mean, you heard about the physical condition he's in. Right. He, he doesn't look great. And so it's not like he looks like, you know, the few public appearances and pictures and stuff of him that are out there. The great Gutsby is kind of insulting. <laughs> it is. What you, what you really think about it? Mm, that's kind of a low blow. I wonder what F. Scott Fitzgerald would think of that turn of phrase. <laughs> hey, speaking of, speaking of, uh, rumors and things that you hear that are unsubstantiated. I like randomly read something the other day that like, there's some theory that F Scott Fitzgerald didn't write the great Gatsby. Have you ever heard that? No, no, I haven't heard that. Well, that's, that's for another sort of podcast. Those are not the sorts of rumors that we expose here or, um, check into, but listen, if, if you think your favorite artist might be living incognito at a hotel near you and you served him dinner tonight, please by all for all me, by all means, please reach out. We are the story guys at gmail.com. We will investigate for you. And if you want to expose something or expose something where someone has exposed themselves or there is some rumor or innuendo, there is sex, drugs, and rock and roll, anything that you want to know that you weren't sure if it really was true, make sure and send us an email because that's where we get some of our best show ideas. What, what so about what about sax, drugs, and rock and roll? <laughs> can I please, can I have this moment back for that joke? Please, please, please. What should people keep doing until next time? Keep saxing stories, everybody. Keep saxing stories? Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The theme song is Counterpointless by the band Hark the Herald. The show is engineered, recorded, and produced by Brian Eichenberger. Check out more podcasts and book the guys for your house party at wearethestoryguys.com.